It is a gift to learn early in life what you want to do. Robert St. John is one of those lucky ones. He has spent his life cooking, opening restaurants, and giving back to his community. We talk to him today. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Robert St. John. He's a restaurateur, prolific author, Mississippi enthusiast, philanthropist, and traveler. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue. Hi, Liz. Good to be here. So my first question really is, what drew you to the restaurant industry? Because you've been in it for a while. Yeah, 43 years, I think. Yeah. Well, just to be honest with you, I flunked out of college. And so I was, my dad died when I was six, and my mom was a public school art teacher. She raised my brother and me up on a you know, an art teacher's salary. So if I was going to have any money, I had to work. And I started working really when I was 12, you know, mowing yards, but at 15, you know, got a real taxpaying job as a disc jockey at radio stations and <clears throat> worked 40 hours a week all through high school. When it came time to go to college, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, what I was interested in. And, and so I just uh, majored in communications because I was in radio, but after about two two years, Mississippi State University decided they no longer needed my services in Starkville. And, uh, you know, I kind of moved back to Hattiesburg, my hometown, a little embarrassed, tail tucked between my legs. I was maybe 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, there were two ladies opening a delicatessen. I needed a job. They knew nothing about the restaurant business, which is obvious because they hired me as the manager of the delicatessen. <clears throat> and it's one of those things that, Liz, I feel like, Almost looking back, that was 1981, looking back, I feel like it was the first shift of the first day that I just fell in love with it. But but probably it was sometime in the first week that I thought, oh, I love this. This is this is this is what I want to do. And it really, you know, I found my calling at a, at a young age. I was blessed. And so I got serious about life. I got clean and sober, went back to college, got a degree in hospitality management. And, um, you know, from that first job, I was managing the deli during the day. Then I got a job waiting tables at night and put myself back through college and just totally obsessed with restaurants and opened the first one in in December of 87, the Purple Parrot Cafe, and had been just kind of blowing and going ever since then. So you never went to culinary school? No, I didn't go to culinary school. I got a degree in hospitality management. More, I, I was a front of the house guy. Yeah. And, and so when we opened that first restaurant, there, there are several things in my life I can look back on that, that seemed like the absolute worst thing that could have happened. One of those was, you know, flunking out of college. But had I not flunked out of college, I never would have gotten in the restaurant business. Sure. Um, I got a DUI in 1983. Had I not gotten that DUI, I wouldn't have gotten clean and sober. And I was headed down a a really dangerous path. But then when we opened the restaurant in 87, I was a, again, a front of the house guy. I'd managed a deli and been a waiter for a very long and storied college career. And, 
you know, we hired a chef from the Panhandle who was a legend down there. He was a legend for two reasons. One, his food was great and everybody knew it, but two, he was like a party animal and this guy would, you know, he, he was a binge drinker. He'd start drinking on Wednesday night and they'd find him in Panama City like on Sunday or something. Oh, wow. But <clears throat> we hired him as the chef of the opening chef at Purple Parrot. And the one condition I had, I mean, I had no money. I sold a little piece of lamb my grandfather left me for $25,000. And that was my stake in opening the restaurant. And we told him, well, you know, whatever you do, you just can't drink. You can't drink. We're risking. It was really nothing, but it was everything. Mm -hmm. And I learned uh, my first business lesson in the restaurant business opening night. And that lesson is lock the beer cooler because this guy drank a case of beer out of the walk-in opening night. And I have, I had to fire the chef opening night of my first restaurant. And again, that became the third, what looked like worst thing that could happen that turned out to be a blessing because night number two, you know, who was back there. Of course. Yes. <laughs> and the extent of my cooking experience at that point in time was that I had asked for and received an easy bake oven for Christmas when I was six years old. So I, I, I knew how to, I knew how to bake with a hundred watt light bulb. That was it. But I spent the next four years doing 90 hours a week in the kitchen and taught myself how to cook in a commercial kitchen and loved every minute of it. I paid myself $250 a week and, and had I had the money, I would have paid somebody for the privilege of, of just owning my own restaurant, loved it and been blowing and going ever since. Oh, wow. Well, that that's really remarkable that you just kind of pulled it all together. Some people spend years waiting to find out what they want to do. Uh, yeah. that's, that's really fortunate. So where did your love of travel come from? So as a kid, like I told you, you know, we didn't have any money growing up and we didn't really travel a lot. And so I dreamed of traveling and, and all, most of the travel I saw was through movies. I've been a huge movie fan my whole life and have always gone to the movies, still do. And the the main thing I would talk about, you know, and then those first 15 years or so in the restaurant were pretty much tied to the restaurant all the time doing that 90 hour week thing. But in 2011, I took my wife and at the time my 10 year old son and 14 year old daughter, we flew to Sweden, bought a Volvo, and spent the next six months in 17 countries in 72 cities on two continents. And it is still today one of the absolute best thing I will ever have done, not only for my family, just but for, you know, just for myself and, and my well-being. And it created a sense of wanderlust in my son, who was 10 at the time. I ended up doing, I think it was about my eighth book or something while I was in Italy a collaboration with the watercolor artist Wyatt Waters. It was our third book together. And, you know, out of that came what, what I do today. In addition to restaurants and the other things I do, I'm a, I'm a travel host and I spend, I do five tours a year in the spring and five in the fall, mostly Italy, but also in, in about two or three weeks, I'll be in Spain with a group, then three groups in Tuscany. And then I've got a group in England and Scotland. And then in the fall, I'll be doing Sicily again, and then four Tuscany groups. So that's just, you know, pretty much my entire life has been, I just wanted to own one restaurant. I mean, I never wanted to do books. I never wanted to do TV shows. I never I wanted to have one restaurant so I could wear a t-shirt and shorts every day. And that was my goal at 26. And it's kind of grown 
into this thing that, you know, <laughs> whatever it is now, it's a lot. So I am just going to tell you a little, little story. I'm, I'm half Sicilian. So going to Sicily was a really special thing for me also. It was amazing to eat food that I could see the roots of what I had eaten. Because of course it changed after people came here and they put a lot more meat in things and it it was, it wasn't exactly the same, but I, when I went into a a bakery and they were selling muffaletta bread and I thought, Oh my goodness, this is is familiar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. I love Sicily. We on the, on the long tour I did with my family, we, we spent a little over a week kind of circumventing clockwise around the coastline which is what I just did this past October with a group. And I'll be back this October with a group for, I think we did eight nights in Sicily. It was, it was, it was a great time. And, you know, Italy, you know, Italy's a younger country than America is. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they weren't unified till the 1860s. Yeah. yeah. So it's still very regional, as you know. I mean, still people from Sicily consider themselves Sicilian Sicilian. before Italian. Rome's consider themselves Romans, Mm -hmm. Tuscans, Florentines, Milanese, Venetians, you know, they're, they're all that. And in each region, as you know, is, is very, is very different and very diverse country. And before I did that trip, if you would have asked me, you know, out of all these countries you're going to, you know, where I would have probably said maybe France first and, maybe England and then one of the Scandinavian countries, which I love those Scandinavian countries, Uh Uh but, but it turned out to be Italy by far and then Spain. And, and so we spent a lot of, I'll be there in 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 several weeks, but Spain's a great country as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to ask you about writing books when Mm -hmm. you, when you first started to do that, what was your was your motivation? Were you saying, oh, I just had this book inside me, it has to come out? Or were you more saying this would be good for my restaurants? And how, how did you approach that? Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I told you everything I've done has been just, you know, I have fallen backwards into so many things. I'll we had a we had a I was writing a newspaper. I didn't want to even write a newspaper column. The local newspaper in the late 90s contacted me. We want you to write a weekly column based on food. And I said, I don't have time. I don't want to do it. And they kept coming back, kept coming back. Finally, my marketing director said, you should do this. You should do it. And so I started. And I hadn't really even wanted to write a letter from when I was in high school. I had a little penchant for writing. My English teachers liked my stuff. But then I got so focused on restaurants that, you know, I didn't focus on. So those early columns were really bad. But, <laughs> but after, after a while, I started really enjoying it and gaining a passion for it. And then, you know, other newspapers started going, Hey, we'd like to carry we And so I, you know, I ended up in 30 something newspapers a week. I've been writing that column for 25 years. I've never a thousand words a week. I've never missed a week, but the column had been going for maybe two or three years. And I had a, had a very, very regular customer in the restaurants. Her name was Frances Carnes, and she ran the gifted studies program at Southern Miss over here. Mm-hmm. And she would come in every day. She was always some, she's one of these ladies, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to do this. Uh-huh. And, and she was, got on this kick, Robert, you need to do a cookbook. You need to do a cookbook. And I was like, Francis, I don't have time. I'm, you know, 
my kids were young. I was doing the restaurant thing, writing this column, and I'd see her the next day. You need to do a cookbook. You need, and this kept going. And finally, one day, she was in the Purple Pear Cafe. I remember it like it's yesterday, sitting at table three with a gentleman. <laughs> she called me out, Robert. This is so and so with this publishing company. Tell him about your cookbook. Well, you oh know, <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it. And so I'm trying to think quickly on my feet. I'm sitting down at the table and I said, well, if I were to do a cookbook, I would do recipes I've created here at the restaurant over the years. I guess at the time we've been open 15 years or so. I said I would have stories about food in the South and growing up in the South like I do in the column. And then I would have watercolors by Wyatt Waters. And without missing a beat, this guy who had published one of his books said, well, if you get White Waters, you got a book deal. Well, the problem is I didn't know White Waters. I just had a couple of his books and I really liked his angle on the way he looked at things. And so I just got in my car the next day and I went to Clinton, Mississippi, to the White Waters Gallery. He's a very talented watercolor artist. I'd never met him. I'm not, I'm not the type to kind of cold call anyone. And I, wa- I walked into the gallery and I said, hey, I got an idea for, for like a coffee table cookbook with your watercolors and you know my recipes and I'll do some writing about food in the South and growing up. And we talked about that for about 10 minutes. And then we talked about the Beatles for about the next two hours. <laughs> and, and here's the crazy thing that happened. The, the publisher, and that's why I didn't mention the name of the publishing company. He sent me, after, we had started working on this book. And he sent me an example of what he was thinking of. And it was really just a kind of a rag paper junior league type cookbook. And I was like, no, that's not what we're talking about. You know, this is, I wanted full color, you know, coffee table book with recipes. And I don't think anybody had done anything like that at that time with watercolors and food and Southern origin. And so I called Wyatt up and I said, man, I don't think this is going to happen. This guy didn't get it. You know, this is a black and white rag paper. It's not going to. He said, well, just publish it yourself. Well, you know, I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) But I didn't really be honest with you. I didn't know how to run a restaurant either when I opened one and I didn't know how to write a newspaper column. So I guess I'm just dumb enough to. And so we hired a a guy named John Langston who worked for University Press in Mississippi to design the book. And as we're working on it, he called me up one day and he said, how many of these you want to print? And I, I, I didn't know, but I remembered back to that conversation with the, with the publisher. And I remember him saying a little arrogantly, actually, well, if we can't sell 7,000 books, you know, we don't want to touch it. And so in my head, I thought, well, 7,000 books must be some, you know, kind of benchmark for publishing. Right, I don't right. know. And so I said, okay, I told the guy, print 10,000 books. I'll have books in my attic for my great grandchildren to have, you know, we'll, we'll never go through those. And so that book came out the first of November in 2022 or something like that. And it sold out in three weeks. We sold 10,000 books really just out of my 2022. No, I'm sorry. 2002. Oh, okay. 2002. I misspoke 20 something year, 22 years ago. Uh That book came out. And in three weeks later, 10,000 books were gone in three weeks. The second printing, the second printing sold out in three months. I mean, it was just, it was this thing. And so that's, that's how the book thing started. And I did, I did a couple of books on my own. Why and I did another book and, and then in the restaurant one day in the purple pair one day, again, Francis Carnes was sitting at a table with a guy who was speaking at the university. She introduced me and he said, do you have an agent? I said, no, I don't have an agent. 
Yeah, I wasn't looking for an agent. I mean, we were doing well, just we're selling, you know, thousands right. of books just right. without any. And so he ended up hooked me up with this guy and I ended up getting an agent and I flew to New York. I had never met this guy before with Curtis Brown Limited. Mitchell Waters was his name. And, uh, and that day, I mean, we had lunch. I met this guy, my agent, my new agent, and we were in Simon and Schuster, like two hours later, we're on the elevator going to pitch. I didn't have a book. I mean, I had, <laughs> I said, we're going up the elevator. I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, just, just tell them about what you think they had. They had the books I had already written at that point. Uh-huh. And, and the press kits, the press kits were really creative. And that's back when there were, you know, newspapers to really look at press. A couple of newspapers actually wrote stories on the press kit and not the book, which wasn't a good. <laughs> but, but riding up the elevator, I can't remember if it was Random House or Simon and Schuster or one of those guys. And, and I remember just telling myself, well, here, I mean, here it is. You're, you're here. Just be yourself and just do what you want. I mean, just speak the truth and don't oversell and just. And so we sat in, I think we went to five different publishers. DK was one and Hyperion at the time, which is owned by ABC Disney was one. And I, I didn't have a book, but I was telling them there, here are these books. I've got these ideas. I'd love to do a grilling book, a Christmas book, you know, a, a you know, breakfast book, blah, blah. I, I write stories and the stories come in the books. And, and then this auction started that I'd never heard of a book auction and you know, it was supposed to last like just a few hours and I get the call from the agent and this, this guy's offering this and this guy's offering this. And it, it was like three days, this thing went on oh, and I ended up, I swear, I ended up with a six figure deal, three book deal. But one of the, one of the books they wanted, this is Hyperion was a book I'd already written that I designed. And all they did was just reprint it and put their name on it. So, so the deal was so good. It was a three book deal. I was only going to write two books. Right. So that came about and just, you know, that's, that's really the kind of story of my life. I've never, never planned anything. And I think this last book, the breakfast book, I just got finished off tour with was my 13th. And I, I finished that book tour on a Saturday before Christmas. And we started shooting the next book Monday. The week before the next book is called this last book was mississippi mornings it was a breakfast book that i wanted to do for a long time the next book is called mississippi christmas and so we shot the book all the principal photography was done the week before christmas and the week after christmas because that's you know when all the christmas stuff is up we didn't want right. to have to redo it back in april or something so those are two books that i wanted to do with hyperion and uh, Hyperion liked a book I wrote called Deep South Staples or How to Survive in a Southern Kitchen Without a Can of Cream of Mushroom Soup, which was my second book. And it was kind of a retro package. And it was taking these recipes I had grown up with that my grandmother made and, and kind of updating them and legitimizing them. And so the green bean casserole was in there. But instead of dumping a can of cream of mushroom soup in there, I made a mushroom bechamel sauce that you had. So it's another step, but it but it makes it so much better. Right. Yeah. And that was the premise. And they liked that. And they wanted to kind of do a package three book deal thing. Well, I pitched Christmas and I pitched they wanted to do holiday, not Christmas. And then I pitched breakfast. They didn't want to do breakfast for whatever reason. And so I ended up doing a party book. It was called Deep South Parties. And they wanted to put it in that retro package like the first one was, and I kind of kind of told them 
you know, guys, this, this is not retro. These are updated modern recipes. There's going to be a disconnect. And I can remember being on the Upper West Side in their offices, letting them know that and telling them, and, you know, they, no, 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 we got this. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm in their office in New York. They must know, you know, what's going on and, right. and what's, what's going on here. And so I just deferred. And about three weeks into the run of that book, I got a call from the, I don't know, it was the publicist or the press agent or whoever it was. And they said, you know, we've got a disconnect here. I said, do you think? <laughs> and so the next book I did was one I really, is what I really wanted to do and have photography and everything in it. And it was called A New South Grilling. It was a grilling book. It was one of my favorites that I've done. But the lesson I learned with them, I did another book with Rutledge Hill. But the lesson I learned with them is that maybe, you know, I'm in tune at least with the people who, who follow me and my work and that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily as great as it is to have a national publishing deal. Um, I can self-publish and I stopped using big box retailers. I only sell my books through independently owned local bookstores and gift shops. And, you know, I, we can go through seven, 10,000 books in a season around Christmas. And, and I have hundred percent creative control and, and people seem to connect at least so far with the ones I've done. So they still, I think have, or somebody's got first right of refusal on my next stuff, whoever owns that company now, but I hadn't gone back to a national publisher and I just, you know, we're just a little small operation. I, I, I love doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's, that's the best. I think that sounds yeah. wonderful. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent in eating local and, you know, I'm in the restaurant business. It's my primary business. And we have six restaurants and a bar or two. And, you know, we have all these national chains coming in on us all the time. And so, you know, I've got the whole back mural of one of my buildings says eat local. And so I'm eat local, eat local, drink local. I'm that guy. But, you know, some of my books were going into, you know, big box retailers that were squeezing out a lot of the independents. And, and so I was like, you know, if I'm going to, I need to practice what I preach. And so right. I made that change a couple of books ago. And so you stayed in, in your hometown, which I think is also amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've done a lot of philanthropy. So that to me is something that's really, really special that you've had all this success and kind of whether you stumbled into some of it or not is irrelevant. It's still, it's yeah. really wonderful, but you've really shared too. I, I think some of the, the programs that you've put together are really, really interesting. They're, they're unique and special. So why don't you tell us a little about them? Yeah, I think you're mainly talking about Extra Table, which is a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, I started back in 2009. And again, <laughs> nothing I ever planned. I, I, was sitting, I was sitting at this desk one day and you, you said, you, I'm in Hattiesburg, Mississippi is where I grew up. I grew up about four blocks that way. But I was sitting here at my desk one day, right across from the restaurant, and I got a call from a mission pantry in Hattiesburg. At the time, they were feeding about 800 families a month, and they were completely out of food. And they were panicking, and they needed help to you know, take care of their clients who were coming in in a couple of days. And they said, can you help us? We need food. And I said, well, sure, happy to help. And so I figured the quickest, best, easiest way to get them food would just call one of my food service distributors, put together an order and have it drop ship to the agency. Mm -hmm. Pardon me. And, uh, and we did. And so 
the next day they had food and it, it struck me at that time, this was 2009, that maybe if there were an easier way for these type places to get food that, that they wouldn't run out of food. And But to be honest with you, I'm going to tell myself a little bit, I was really skeptical there was even a hunger problem. I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, this is America. You know, certainly I can get some maybe third world Central American country having hunger issues, but not America. And so I went on kind of a, a fact finding mission and I learned quickly that there's a, there's a huge problem. And unfortunately, Mississippi, my home state, is number one in the nation in food insecurity. We're a relatively small state of 2.9 million people, but 670,000, almost 20% are food insecure. And, and over 200,000 of those are kids who eat a school breakfast, a school lunch, and then don't eat again until the next day. And you got like 125,000 seniors who eat, try, sitting here trying to figure out, can I pay the light bill? Or can I get my prescription? Or can I, you know, go to the grocery store? I mean, those are decisions that are real and being made. My eyes were opened. And so I started this thing called Extra Table. And it's based on the simple, it's really business principles for a nonprofit. And what we do is we raise money. We use that money to buy food below wholesale and we deliver it free to no cost to the agencies. Mm -hmm. And so it started with one agency and me, just me. And it's grown now to last year, we served 6 million meals, healthy meals to over 62 pantries across the state of Mississippi at no charge to them whatsoever. So what I learned is there are a lot of agencies, soup kitchens and mission pantries out there that are doing the work that needs to be done. The problem is they're having a hard time, you know, keeping food on the shelves because the need is so big. And so I founded Extra Table on two principles. There are two founding principles. Number one, 100% of the money we raise for food is gonna go to purchase food. No salaries, no travel, none of that. I didn't want to be a part of any kind of nonprofit with all these inflated administrative costs, all that stuff. So 100% of the money we raise for food goes to purchase food. And we purchase below wholesale. And so, you know, you could go to the grocery store and, and, and fill a cart for $500 and take it to a soup kitchen or agency. We can go, you know, with our buying power, we're basically filling two, two shopping carts or more for the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And and the second founding principle is it's gonna be healthy food. Because unfortunately, Mississippi's number one in food insecurity, we're also number one in obesity. And I had a problem with that at the early on. I'm like, well, you know, it seems like somebody's eating something somewhere if we're okay. the least well-fed and the most obese. Mm -hmm. But what I learned is that those two always go hand in hand. That if you don't have enough money to lead a proper diet, then you're basically living out of a convenience store. And it's a reality, it's a real thing. And, and you know, they're getting the cheapest sugar, sugar drinks and snack foods, and people are living off that. And kids who are having a school breakfast and a school lunch and not eating again until the next day don't need that kind of food. And when I was going around to these agencies, I was looking, because most of them survive on canned drives. And canned food drives are the most ineffective way to feed those in need because I was, unfortunately, people use that as an opportunity to just clean out their pantry. I mean, right. I was seeing things like, you know, blueberry pie filling and stuff like that. And, and some kid 
that's not going to eat until the next day doesn't need blueberry pie filling. Right. So yeah. all our food is healthy food, low fat proteins, low sugar fruits, healthy grains, low sodium vegetables, and we deliver it right to the door of the agency. And yeah, so Extra Table has, is like I said, six million healthy meals last year to agencies at no charge to them. During COVID, we shipped 5.9 million pounds of food to different agencies. And so it's, we're, in my opinion, the most efficient and effective nonprofit in the state. It's run by a very small team. And, you know, it's, it's a, our aim is true. We just want to feed those in need. So tell me also, what is the Institute for Southern Storytelling? I, that one, I just fell in love with that. So you have to tell us about that one. So I've done several TV shows, five seasons of a show called Pallet to Pallet on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And as a part of that, my production partner and I, Anthony Thaxton, he and I, when we were at the Walter Anderson Museum in Ocean Springs, you're familiar with Walter Anderson's yes, work? Yes. What a great story. <clears throat> I decided we need to do a documentary on Anderson. The, really, the only thing out there was an old piece from the 70s called The Islander, which really didn't go into a lot of detail. And so we, a couple of years ago, filmed a documentary called Walter Anderson, The Extraordinary Life and Art of the Islander. There's also a companion book that came out uh, with that documentary. Well, the documentary won a couple of regional Emmys and garnered a lot of attention. It went on to PBS and aired on over 325 PBS stations, over 1,300 airings, and all top 100 markets during prime time. So my goal when we did that documentary was I wanted people from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine to know who Walter Anderson was. And, and know and appreciate his work. And the president of Mississippi College in Clinton, Mississippi, a guy named Blake Thompson, saw that documentary and got in touch with Anthony and myself and said, you know, what are you guys thinking? And we said, well, we'd like to do more of this. We want to want to tell more stories like this. And, and so that was a meeting last March. By June, we had a facility on the campus of Mississippi College called the Institute of Southern Storytelling. And Anthony and I are the co-founders. We're in the process of a documentary on Eudora Welty right now that's called Eudora Welty. It's called Eudora. And it'll be out, I believe, in August. It will also have a companion book. And like the Anderson book and documentary, we had complete and total access from the family, from the museum. And there were so many pieces that had never been seen before. As with Welty, we've had, you know, you know, the book of her WPA photographs, you know, I don't know, maybe 60 or 70 photographs in that book. Well, there were 1,500 that she did. So there's so much, not only of her photography, but there are a lot of stories that people don't know. Or we're telling those. They're all great. I mean, this is an amazing woman from Mississippi. And people currently from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, mostly know who Eudora Welty is. I think a lot of maybe the younger generation, not so much, but we're going to, you know, it's our goal to do the same thing that we've done there. But at the Institute, we're, we've, we filmed a great concert with bluesman Vastai Jackson that will air. I've got an interview show there called A Thousand Words. And so that's what the Institute of Southern Storytelling is. We're, we're here to, we're, we're working on our next documentary based on a story from, I don't know if you know, uh, Curtis Wilkie's book, When Evil Lived in Laurel. Are you familiar with that book? I am, and, and yeah. Curtis Wilkie, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
So, you know, that book is about a man who's actually a friend of mine, was a friend of mine's dad, who went undercover with the Ku Klux Klan in the 60s to report and infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan to report to the FBI at, at, at great peril. He didn't even receive any money for it or anything. And so we're working on a documentary about that right now, too. So, you know, I got a couple irons in the fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. This was a great conversation. Yeah. People can go to your website if they want to learn more. You want to tell us your website? Yeah, it's easy. If you remember my name, that's it. It's robertstjohn.com. And you can access the books and the restaurants and Extra Table and the Institute and everything from there. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.